here's the smoking gun. Because uh, Jörg Fassbinder, who headed up the archaeological mission, showed the technology they'd used to identify this site. And he said, we're 99% sure this is going to be the sarcophagus of Gilgamesh, who, according to the Sumerian story, was a hybrid king that's part human, part sky people, and uh, was much bigger than the rest of us. So there'd be plenty of ways they could test that theory. They could look at the size of the sarcophagus, the size of any remains within it, and there's the possibility of DNA testing as well. So before they went in, it was all public. We're going in. We think we found the tomb. And then silence. Absolutely nothing more was said until I think it may have been five years later, Jörg Fassbinder was being interviewed by a French archaeological magazine. And he said, oh, we decided not to pursue it any further. Are you looking for the ultimate Christmas gift for the prepper in your family? Or maybe you are looking for affordable ways to prepare for what may be coming. If this is you, we have a curated list of unique gifts for all members of your family. But within that list, we have the ultimate list of prepper gifts. It includes important essentials from the medicine garden that turns your backyard into a complete natural pharmacy to the DYI solar panel guide that saves you up to 85% on solar panels. We also have the air phone that extracts up to 10 gallons of water from even the driest desert air to the guide that helps you build a portable space energy generator to power your entire home for less than $300. And wait, there's more. The ultimate woodworking guide that comes with over 16,000 of the best woodworking plans available so you can make anything you want or need. And there is even more. To see all the options, go to sarahwestall.com under shop and look for the unique Christmas list on the top of the shop page or use the link below. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have a treat for you. I just love this conversation I have with Paul Wallace. He is a minister. He grew up in the Episcopal Church, and he actually rose through the ranks, and he was an archdeacon, and he was he talks about his whole background, and he used to train priests on how to interpret different ancient texts and things, and, and then after a while and some experiences, he realized that many of the interpretations in the Bible are not accurate. And that when you go back to the original Hebrew texts and the original ancient texts, there's different meaning in so many of these things. And he, it like Mauro Biglino, believes that we were created by aliens or that's not necessarily he believes that but the book is saying that the old testament is saying that and there's so many fascinating things that he's going to share with you today and when Mauro Biglino came out with his book he wrote one too they've worked in parallel coming to the same conclusions people that don't know who Mauro Biglino is he's a Vatican translator he's translated 17 books for the Vatican knows many languages um, especially the ancient Hebrew languages and the other ancient languages so he can actually look at the source documents and translate these manuscripts properly. And so he came up with some of these same results. I've interviewed Mauro Biglino multiple times. In fact, I had an interview with him that went viral on YouTube. It got about 800,000 views and that one unfortunately was deleted. So what I'm going to do is for my Substack 
members, I'm going to re-upload that. So if you go to sarahwestall.substack.com, you'll be able to find it there and I'll have it for my members. Otherwise, uh, this one is, he's, he's so amazing. They actually worked together, Marl and him, and did a collaboration. They've done some shows together. They did a series on YouTube together. They have become friends over the years. And I can imagine that if you have two parallel, you came up to the same conclusions, but in a parallel fashion, I think that would be very satisfying to have somebody else in the world who that you can confide in and you can work with and you can say, okay, I'm not crazy here. He doesn't think he's crazy. I mean, you look at this information and it's just black and white. Once you start having the context of, of the original print and then also modern technology, our understanding of modern technology, when you go and you read the original Hebrew text or the original ancient text, they're talking about advanced technology and they're talking about it very clearly, but back then they didn't understand what that was. So when their interpretations, interpretation on top of interpretation ends up being what it is today. Plus we talk about other interpretations where they purposely scrubbed things out of the Bible and he explains the original text and how they scrubbed it out or they did the propaganda thing. They all sandwich a fact between two horribles like, this is really bad. And then they say what happened and they said, isn't that bad? I mean, that's propaganda. And then, so they rewrote things to make it to do that so that they would reframe it in your mind that this is a bad thing when the original text never said that. And so he's going to talk through that. So I hope you enjoyed this as much as I do. This is really a long one. And I, I told him, I'm like, be ready to talk for a long time because I am going to go through a lot of this. And I highly recommend that you get his books. And I have a link below. He's up on Amazon. You can also go to his website and get links. I have the links below so that you can go and purchase his books or you know, you can watch him on YouTube or watch him other places, hear him talk. I know he talks at different events and I just, I think you're going to love this guy. Paul Wallace is his name. Before we get into this, I want to remind you about our unique Christmas gift. I've been talking about the ultimate prepper gifts that we have. So you can prepare just, there's a amazing things on there that create there's a device where you can create this water device that takes water out of the air even the driest air and can create 10 gallons in a day there's another one where you can create um, build your own energy device for your home for less than 300 dollars. this is a uh, plan which they've used to give energy to whole villages and you can do that for your own home there's also ways that you can uh build your own solar panels for 85% up to 85% less because you can get all the pieces that the big players buy. You can buy the pieces and put it together and they show you how to do that and you save a boatload of money. So there's all these things that I have for preppers, but I also have a bunch of other unique gifts. So if you get time and you're looking for either for yourself or for people in your family, go to sarahwestall.com under shop and I have a link to the ultimate Christmas gift list. And also I'll have that link below. Okay, remember this is a two part long one. So please stay for the second part and remember to subscribe below and to like us on whatever channel, on whatever platform you're on, that helps us get this information out there. Okay, here's my conversation with Paul Wallace. Hi, Paul, welcome to the program. G'day, Sarah, great to be with you today. I am so excited to have you here. I have interviewed Mauro Biglino many times, and 
I learned about you and your work and your relationship with Mauro and everything you're doing. I said, oh my God, I got to get this guy on. I am so excited that you're here. So thank you for being here. And before we get into this, I want to have you start with what your background is. Well, people, first of all, thank you for having me on your show, which I absolutely love. My background is what surprises people because today people know me as the paleo contact guy. And uh, in case people don't know, paleo contact is the word that refers to the theory that our ancestors had contact with other civilizations in the deep past. That means extraterrestrial visitors. And my route into that territory is what surprises people because my background is in Christian ministry. For 33 years, I worked as a church doctor and a theological educator. I served as an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. That's the Australian version of the Episcopalian Church. An archdeacon is one down from a bishop. So you could say I'm a senior churchman. And it's unusual to have a senior churchman step forward and say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I believe that the bulk of what we have in the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, is actually a record of cultural memory of contact with other species. But that's the conclusion that I've reached. That's what's informed my books, the Eden series. And I reached there essentially from the world of hermeneutics. And for 15 years, I trained pastors in this. That's the principles of interpreting ancient texts. And in particular, going to the root meanings of keywords. And as soon as you do that, a whole other layer of story emerges quite different to the one you and I might have been taught in church. That's what we're going to get into. But before you said you were a church doctor, what does it mean to be a church doctor? Well, a church doctor is someone who goes into churches on a special assignment to fix a problem. And so it may be that community healing is needed after a split or if there's been abuse exposed mm. or a church might need a very specific kind of help to get it to turn a corner to get it launched, to get it to recover. And so usually a church doctor will go in for a short assignment and uh, address very specific issues. And in my case, it led to some really interesting work because sometimes when you go in for community healing, you're addressing political problems, governance problems, but sometimes you're dealing with the paranormal as well. And that work really stretched my worldview. And that crosses over with the work I'm doing today as well. What do you mean that you dealt with the paranormal, like demons and things like that? Things like that. That's okay. right. So, I mean, <laughs> if you go to the earliest Christian literature, uh, the Gnostic literature, they talk about entities they describe as archons. And archons yep. are parasitic entities that feed off uh, the what Plato would call the heavier emotions. So they would manipulate human behavior into being more aggressive, more paranoid, more distressed, and then feed off all that energy. And I actually think the Gnostics were onto something. I think that's something I've observed in community healing situations. And it is a different kind of entity that you have to handle quite differently from a, as if it were a political problem. And in fact, this is so widely acknowledged, every diocese in the Church of England has to have a senior advisor in paranormal ministry. 
And some of the most interesting spokespeople for the churches are those at the top of the denominations who specialize in that area. And you take five minutes with one of those guys and your worldview might end up being a little bit stretched as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. We talk to people who run into demons and I've had conversations, private conversations with people who've seen some of this stuff. And do you believe that the demons are extraterrestrials from another dimension versus extraterrestrials from outer space? Or how do you, I mean, I've talked to people who think that they're all extraterrestrials are really demons from other dimensions. And then I've heard they're both. What are you, what are your thoughts? I think we live in a very interesting cosmos. I think we live in a soup of company. But uh, one of the things I struggle with when you get into the language of demonology is that a few people use that language outside of the religious world. And there are a lot of uh, parts of the religious world where people have been taught to be very um, paranoid or dismissive of things beyond the neat and tidy world of their community of faith. And if they experience something that's anomalous or that they can't explain or that was frightening, they tend straight to that demon word. And uh, there are plenty of churches in the US in particular that I'm aware of where if somebody experiences a close encounter with a a being that's not human, there won't be a box for them to tick when they go to church on Sunday morning if they want to talk about that. And that's my background as well. For a long time, I lived in a neat and tidy evangelical world where the only options for categorizing something were it's either God, the devil, angels, demons, human, animal, vegetable, mineral, and nothing else. And so when at the age of 20, I had a close encounter experience, I had no language for it. And I had to say it frightened me, therefore it was demonic. And I think that's a completely false equation. As I said earlier, I think we're in a whole spectrum of company. So that experience, as you dove into this research, which we're going to talk about, this research changed your understanding of your own experience. It really did. When I published my first book of Paleo Contact, which was Escaping from Eden, Uh, which was purely arguing for a populated cosmos and contacting the past from the Bible. That's really the base of it. And then correlating it with uh, other disciplines, uh, paleontology, other aspects of science, DNA research. After I published that, a lot of people contacted me because they wanted to share their close encounter experiences. They didn't have anyone else they could speak to. Uh, because they felt anyone else they could find would only ridicule them, what they were saying, but they felt they could tell me, but only after they sounded me out. And so um, people would ask me a series of questions to see if I had had any kind of a close encounter. And early on, my answer was, no, I haven't. But I know many people who have. And that was enough for people to then trust me with their answers. But the more I listened to other people's stories, the more I started thinking, wait a minute, I've had that experience, and it took me back to one year in particular when I was 20 years old where I had about five experiences that I could not explain that did not fit into all those boxes I just mentioned. And bit by bit, I realized that those were close encounter experiences, that those entities I encountered were not demons, was not an angel, that what I'd experienced was lost time. 
and that my experience fitted into the experience of many around the world. And so when I came to writing the sequel, The Scars of Eden, one of my goals was to get people to start sharing stories of strange things that have happened to them that they can't explain, to share the stories that sound like stories of nothing. Because the more we do that with each other, the more we will realize we are living in a very interested cosmos with far more company than we generally acknowledge. Well, let's talk about your experience in Brazil and other places where you learn about other cultures. I, it sounds like that, by, from reading your books, that really shaped your understanding as well and got you starting to question what it was that you were actually reading in the Bible and elsewhere. Can you talk about that, those experiences a bit? For sure. Well, I went to Brazil originally as part of my theological training. Uh, for ordination at the Church of England. And I spent some months in Brazil in uh, the top right-hand corner. And the purpose was for me to study what the churches were doing, because there had been this phenomenal period of grassroots community growth, uh, communities of faith in the interior. And I wanted to know how that was happening, what it meant. And bit by bit, I realized that the authorities of the church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, were actually trying to stamp out all this organic church growth. And I couldn't get my head around why they would want to do that. Well, what I learned when I was there went far beyond churchology and uh, missiology, but it took me a long time to process what I was being shown. In fact, I think it was my, my second day in Brazil, we went on a three-hour bus journey uh, into further into the interior to a little town where they were having a uh, a harvest festival. I was told, or a corn festival, they called it. And at first, I thought, "Oh, I think I know what this is." We used to have harvest festivals at school in England, where you know around harvest time, we'd all bring spare cans of food and uh, and dry foods and give them to the needy as a way of saying thank you to God for the harvest. It'll be something like that, I thought. Well, initially it looked like that, but this town really knew how to celebrate. There was music in every square. There was dancing in every square. There was food laid out on tables, all different foods derived from corn. And I had no idea you could make so much from corn, savouries, sweet dishes, drinks, alcoholic beverages, and it was a real party. Everyone was happy. It was an amazing experience. This carried on from the afternoon until midnight. And at midnight, people gathered up these corn figurines and processed with them to the church, sang some songs, and then went into the church for a mass. Well, in the morning, I sat down with my guide, and he said, how did you enjoy our harvest festival? And I said, um, I thought it was fantastic. It's obviously a, you know, a big part of, of Catholic faith in this part of the world. And he said, nothing we did yesterday before we went into that church had anything to do with Roman Catholicism. And that's John Paul II at the time is trying to stamp it all out. Stamp it out? I thought, what, what is this stamping out business I'm seeing? And it took me a long while to realize that what he had just told me was that the commemoration was of something far older than Christianity. 
we were celebrating the Queen of Heaven, I was told. And the Queen of Heaven is a name used in the Roman Catholic world for Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the other part of the story didn't add up because I was then told that the Queen of Heaven came thousands of years ago to teach our ancestors how to cultivate corn. And as soon as we could cultivate corn, we were able to feed ourselves and develop, become farmers, become a civilization. And I thought, well, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was not here thousands of years ago giving lectures in agricultural science. So this didn't quite add up. And it was only much, much later when I learned about festivals held in the 8th and 7th century BCE in the Levant, in Judea, within the ancient Jewish world, festivals that were identical to the one that Pope John Paul wanted to stamp out in Brazil. There again, the squares were full of music, dancing, foods derived from corn, people with female figurines, which they'd hold in their hands and then go to the temple for a It was the exact same celebration. And in their case, it was the Jerusalem guard trying to stamp it out. And it's only as I've done a tour of world mythologies that I realized that these two festivals, separated by nearly 3,000 years, represent a cultural memory that goes all around the world, a memory of an ancient intervention thousands of years ago that raised homo sapiens from living in animal subsistence on the planet's surface to being farmers and civilization builders. And whether it's ancient Judaism or modern Catholicism, the powers of the day are always trying to stamp this memory out. It's never the official story. It's never what you get taught in school. And yet the memory of that ancient intervention has survived. And in the case of the um, Jewish example, the memory of who these beings were and where they came from, what region of space they originated in. And that's the territory I really plumb in my book, The Eden Conspiracy. If you've been paying attention, you know the global economy is transforming. The BRICS nations want to see the end of the dollar reserve currency, and many countries are joining their effort. The Western banking system is the most fragile it's been since 2008. The highly respected Weiss Research Group accurately provided advance warning on which banks are going to fail with 99.3% accuracy after the 2008 crisis. They are now predicting that a whopping 4,243 banks are vulnerable to failure and 1,210 of those banks face imminent failure. When this situation comes to pass, it will dwarf the 2008 banking crisis. The only asset that has historically weathered a storm this severe has been precious metals. It has never been a better time to buy gold and silver to protect your family. Contact Miles Franklin at info at milesfranklin.com. Tell them Sarah sent me and you will get the best service and the best prices on gold and silver in the country. That is a guarantee from them to me. Remember, info at milesfranklin.com. Tell them Sarah sent me. Do this now to protect your assets and the ones you love. That is so fascinating. Now, this is something I didn't know, is the queen of heavens. Her name was, uh, what was her name? Yash. Well, there are many names by which she's known. So Asherah is the name that I use in uh, the conspiracy, but she's also known as Hathor, uh, the Lion Lady. Aphrodite, Venus, 
Mbabwana uh, Warisa is the Zulu name. Hun Hunapu is the Mesoamerican name. All around the world, it's a female figure that is generally credited with this intervention. But we have to understand that figure represents a community of beings who came and assisted our ancestors. Well, it's so fascinating that this whole thing existed. The other thing that is really interesting is it's the same festival across the earth and that this was happening all over the place. So there might have been more of a worldwide or there was a worldwide event going on of some sort. Well, certainly there was a worldwide memory, but when you look at the symbology and then the ceremonial practices, you have to think that our ancient cultures were more connected uh, than we give them credit for. I think there are some cases where you can look at stories and, and say, well, they experienced the same thing and they've created their own traditions to commemorate it. But when the festival itself is so similar all around the world, you have to think the cultures themselves were more connected. And maybe these interventions happened so far in the past that a lot of migration has happened in the time since. And I certainly think that's the case with the Asherah story. That makes sense. And how far back in the past have you concluded that this may have occurred? I think there were at least two interventions that brought agronomy into the human story. And one occurred around 10,000 years ago, and that would be the one commemorated in the Babylonian story of Oannes and the Apkalu, which is an amazing story um, written by a Greek priest who is enshrining the Babylonian memory of the origins of the Sumerian civilization. Now, the emergence of the Sumerians has always mystified archaeologists and anthropologists, how did that civilization spring from nowhere with civil engineering, mathematics, money systems, banking, legal systems, sanitation? How does that come from nowhere? Well, Barossus, this priest, writes the explanation, and he says that beings arrived on the shore of the Red Sea that were non-human. In fact, he says the first one we saw looked like an horrific monster but it turns out they were here to help us to give us all the accoutrements of civilization and that intervention comes around ten thousand years ago so you have farming in the fertile crescent and this is evidenced by other disciplines so for instance um, the max planck institute and the university of as in norway sent a team headed up by manfred hoyne to uh, Karagadar, the top of the Fertile Crescent, and they identify what they think was the first farm, the first place that genetic alteration of naturally occurring plants occurred, the first place that animal husbandry was used. So it's that leap forward. They date it to 10,000 years ago. Other aspects of the story located there. And it's not just agronomy, it's social systems. It's the management of dense populations. There's a lot going on there. And I actually think it's the intervention that leads ultimately to industrial scale farming, petrochemical farming, such as we see today. But then if you go to Native American story, the story of uh, the Cherokee people, the Mohawk people, if you go to the Northern Territory in Australia, listen to the Yongu people, there's a different kind of syllabus that is commemorated. Again, 
They're very clear. It's non-human beings sitting down with our ancestors. But they taught a form of farming that was all about living in balance with the environment, mm -hmm. uh, all to do with sustainable, rotational, uh, organic farming. And I believe that intervention has to be more than 60,000 years old because it's wow. in nar narrative traditions of cultures that are that old. So in Australia, the Aboriginal culture here is at least 60,000 years. Uh, we can show archaeologically and maybe as old as 120,000 years. So when we hear the Yongu people talk about the Mimi beings who were emphatically not human, teaching their ancestors what plants were good for food, which ones were good for medicine, which ones should be avoided, uh, which berry to eat if you want to get pregnant, which plant to eat if you don't want to get pregnant. That story goes back on that kind of a timeline. And it's different to the Babylonian, which is about managing cities. This is about living in the environment and knowing how to thrive within it. So I think you've got two different kinds of intervention on quite a different timeline, but one that goes quite far back into the acknowledged story of Homo sapiens. And this consensus is about 200,000 years for Homo sapiens. 120,000 years gets you quite a long way back. Wow. Well, there's some <clears> ideas <throat> that we were more civilized, like the, the we have you know grown and then fallen and grown and then fallen. And perhaps the 10,000 years is them coming and helping us regrow again. I don't, oh, I don't... yes. That is a very um, significant time 10,000 years ago, because at that point, we are just re-emerging from the planet's most recent cataclysm. So that's mm -hmm. the younger, driest cold period. That's the most recent ice age. And that's a period in which um, the continuation of Homo sapiens absolutely hung in the balance mm -hmm. we could have gone extinct at that time if ever there was a moment when a relaunch of humanity was needed it was then and it's interesting when you get into many of the world's creation myths and cultures really diverse cultures you drill down into the detail of those stories and they're not creation myths they are relaunch stories they are stories of the rehabilitation of a devastated planet. And Genesis 1 would be an example of that. If you read Plato, he was a fabulous synthesizer of international thought. And he argued that there's some kind of a reset like that that happens every 5,000 years or so. There'll be some cataclysm, which may be caused, he said, by the movement of objects in space that creates conditions on the planet's surface here that takes civilization to a virtual zero, and then we need assistance to get going again. And I argue in my Eden series that by the time you reach the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis, you probably read about five planetary resets by the time you get to that point. Wow. that's how, And that's how, based on just really diving into it, it's really a historical view of our survival through resets and assistance through other beings. Exactly. Well, and, and we have been approached with beings that, and this is something you talk about in the, in your book, ones that are good and ones that aren't so good. And that there was the Elohim, which people think are God is really plural. 
that there's like all these gods. Can you talk about That's, that? Yes, exactly. That word was really the white rabbit uh, that led me into this whole rabbit warren of topics. As I started looking at the Hebrew texts of what Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, it concerned me that the word, the most ancient word translated as God in the Bible was a plural. It's a masculine plural form, Elohim, meaning the powerful ones. And not only is it that kind of a word, but it carries very often plural form verbs and attributives. And then I found that the powerful ones got into conflicts with each other, disagreed with each other, had wars with each other. Thousands of human beings were slaughtered in the conflicts among the Elohim. By the time you followed the word that far, you know it can't possibly mean God, that it really does mean the powerful ones. And so in Escaping from Eden, I asked the question, what happens if we retell the stories of the Elohim using the root meaning of the word? And the stories change, but they don't change in a random way. As soon as I did that exercise, I realized that the powerful ones of the biblical narratives are the sky people of the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian narratives. And I remembered enough from my theological training to know that the Bible has a probable dependency on those stories. So I thought, well, let me go and read them. And as soon as I started reading the translated cuneiforms of those ancient cultures, I started recognizing, well, there's the story of Genesis 1, the flooded planet that needs rehabilitating. There's the story of the male being created as a kind of a, a drone species, a clone species. And now they're a fertile species, but they're working for someone else. And now there's a tussle over how intelligent they should be how many there should be, and now there's a deluge, and now there's a bombing of a spacefaring civilization on the planet back into the Stone Age. I was recognizing all these stories that I knew from the Bible in the Sumerian narratives. And as soon as you realize that these ancient Elohim stories, which I'd always thought were God stories, are actually based on somebody else's stories of aliens, uh, that's like taking the red pill in the matrix. You can't go back. You can't go back to seeing it the other way. And so I started following other words, going back to their root meanings. So you have Elohim, the powerful ones. El, the power. El Ba'adat, the council of powerful ones. The Tseva Hashemayim, the sky armies, all referring to this, this same group. Uh, but when you call them the sky armies, and then detail what it was their advanced technology could do, uh, it's unmistakable that you're looking at an advanced species intersecting with our ancestors in the deep past, who, even though they were baffled by what they were seeing, describe it so faithfully that you and I can go back to those Hebrew texts, read them in the root meanings and say, I know what that is. I know what I'm looking at here. That is a... Um, wormhole that is a portal that is a spacecraft that's a close encounter that's a non-human life form that's advanced disintegrating weaponry it's all crystal clear to those of us who have a technological uh, frame of reference and it's 
recorded with such fidelity in the Hebrew text that you can go back and recognize it. The problem is the intervening centuries of translators who've had a go at those texts with no technological framework. And so they've been reading about technology, thinking it was a spiritual text and trying to find a way of describing it. But the wonderful gift of the Hebrew scriptures is you can go back to the original language, go to the root meanings, and the original viewpoint is there in crystal clarity. That's awesome, because that's where, with our now modern understanding of technology, we've come a little farther, right? We're not quite at portals and wormholes and stuff, but we're talking about them, and we're starting to try to understand them, and there's there's science behind it. So now there's a framework for us to yes. understand it. And so the modern world can look at this and look at it different, but with layers of of translating it improperly, you get to what we have today, right? And so the only way you can get to the truth is to get go back to those original texts. Yes, that's right. And these are concepts that uh, our powers today take very seriously. So NASA, for instance, has been throwing very significant money at portal technology for more than 30 years. 30 years ago, they had identified a wormhole close to planet Earth and had started measuring the mass of matter that travels through it. 30 years ago, their advanced propulsion unit was asking the question, can we fly a craft into that? Well, goodness only knows what they've done in the 30 years since. That's right. But there's, there's real science and technology around that. And as another measure of how seriously this is taken, after I published Escaping from Eden, I started hearing from veterans of war, and in particular, uh, American servicemen who'd been deployed in Iraq in the 2003 incursion into Iraq. And many of them came back asking profound questions about what exactly we were doing there. So they had gone in for all the public reasons to do with regime change, you know, protecting mm -hmm. the Kurds, protecting the world from weapons of mass destruction. But when they got there, they found their unit was on an archaeological mission. Wow. And in fact, uh, some units were deployed within days of getting into Iraq to protect a site where they were excavating, excavating what was believed to be the tomb of Gilgamesh, who is the king in the world's most ancient written narrative, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Your Fassbinder. Was it? Ah, well, this here's here's the smoking gun, because uh, York Fassbinder, who headed up the archaeological mission, showed the technology they'd used to identify this site, and he said, "We're ninety nine percent sure this is going to be the sarcophagus of Gilgamesh, who, according to the Sumerian story, was a hybrid king. That's part human, part sky people." and uh, was much bigger than the rest of us. So there'd be plenty of ways they could test that theory. They could look at the size of the sarcophagus, the size of any remains within it. And there's the possibility of DNA testing as well. So before they went in, it was all public. We're going in, we think we found the tomb, and then silence. Absolutely nothing more was said until, I think it may have been five years later, Jörg Fassbinder was being interviewed by a French archaeological magazine, and he said, oh, we decided not to pursue it any further. Right. Well, how likely is that? Just how likely is it? Because if it's that important that within days of getting into Iraq, you've got 
military protection of that excavation, are you going to decide halfway through you're just going to bury it for its protection? I think far more likely is that you would want to know what was there, but you would want to examine it in private. And if it turned out to be inconclusive, no, nothing to see, you would publish the results. If you found something earth shattering, you wouldn't publish. So I think they found something earth shattering. But I heard from other units as well, people who came back. And the question they asked me, just to come back to what we were talking about before, they asked me, what's the credibility of Stargate technology? What's the credibility of portal technology? Because they had talked to colleagues of theirs who said their units were there for that. And I had to answer, well, I don't have any privileged information about that. But what I can tell you is there's real science around that, what I've just said about NASA. But also, if you go to the Bible, to Genesis 11, and read that alongside the Sumerian story, if ever there was a civilization here in the past that had portal technology, according to those narratives, you would find it in Iraq. And if anyone uh, in US defense thought there was any chance that there'd been a previous civilization with technology like that, they'd be pretty darn sure they would want that technology and not someone else. Even the suspicion of it would take you into a place to say, this is our territory, we're going to have a look to see what's here. And uh, I actually believe that that motivation was part of the reason that we were there, because of the possibility of ancient technology resurfacing. Well, let me ask you, what do you think of this? Makes me think of this. What do you think of the ethics of our tax money and being used? Are the public's money the public resources being used only for them to black it out and do black projects for the benefit of a few? Well, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, I mean, I have an old fashioned uh, belief in democracy. So black budgets sort of offends me at that level. And in theory, it's not, I think in theory, it's not constitutional in the USA, but it happens. You have special access projects, you have more than $9 trillion that's gone AWOL, that's doing something. But the thing that makes me not wholly down on it is, well, it relates to what we have heard very recently in the uh, conflict between the Pentagon and Congress uh, around the program. So this is all the David Grush business where he's saying that information about reverse engineering of materials we have from UFO crashes is being withheld illegally from other units within the military intelligence community and being withheld from Congress. And what he is saying echoes what we heard in Christmas 2020 from Hayam Ashed, who is the Brigadier General who for 28 years was Israel's Chief of Space Security. So it was his job to know if we were in contact. And he said that on the basis of his information, you can't get more privileged information than what he had access to. We have been in contact for more than seven decades, and we've been working on reverse engineering stuff that would give us spacefaring capacity. And he says that disclosure is waiting for the time when we, you and I, the general public, have a better understanding of what space is and what spaceships are. 
So you drill down into that and he's saying that our visitors have agreed not to self-disclose until we also are a spacefaring civilization. So we have to reach the point where we can manipulate space-time to the point where we can do interstellar travel. As soon as we can do that, we're true spacefarers, we're part of the club, and the dynamics of the relationship changes. That's what he is saying. That's also what Ed Mitchell argued for uh, in his latter years as well. And so if that's true, then we have to reach a technological bar before our exopolitics changes. And if it takes black budgets for us to reach that technological bar, fine. But I do want us to reach the point where that knowledge is public, because I think that's also the bar that our, our overseers are looking for, that the human race becomes a spacefaring civilization. And again, I fully understand why you'd want to do that research uh, in private, but I think it's important that we reach that bar and that our civilization reaches that point. Otherwise, we're totally vulnerable to uh, other spacefaring factions always having the say-so, that we become only the observed, the discussed, and we're never players. But I share Ed Mitchell's confidence and Hamish Shedd's confidence that we're on a timeline for that dynamic to change. Well, and I think people are demanding it, right? People like me or others who are saying, hey, wait a minute, you can't just do all this black budget stuff, be in the yeah. know. You're in well, the know and got... the rest of us aren't and it affects all of our lives and you're taking my money exactly. to do that. There's a point where it yeah. becomes morally ethically wrong and it's it's and the line unjust. crosses yeah and maybe they're at that point now where they're realizing if we don't do this then this is we're seriously yeah. ethically in the wrong here well let's well what's so interesting in 2023 though just to add to that is that you have got the inspector general of the intelligence community and dopsa the authority that has to okay anything anybody says from within that community both those agencies want more disclosure. Both those agencies want the Congress and the public brought into the conversation about the contact we already have. And we've never seen that in our lifetimes before. Not since the 1940s has there been that kind of openness. And that gives me cause for optimism. Well, I had Paul Hellyer on the program, which is a Canadian defense minister that was one of the highest. Wonderful. Yeah. And he was one of the highest people in the world to come out and say, hey, these exist. And I mean, he was he thought there was a whole council. And we're going to talk about that, what you found in the Bible or what you have done research on. So there's a whole managing council. They're here waiting to help us or to have us join. And we're right on the, the edge of that. And I, I mean, I just find that is absolutely fascinating. But we are in this place where it feels that we're being manipulated by something bigger than us or we're just a, it's all chaos the global controllers seem like they want to call the population i mean we're in this just horrible yes. place right so yes, what are. does that mean to i mean are they controlling us or are they watching waiting for us to grow up or i mean what is going on here Yes, I think a whole load of things are going on. And when Paul Hellyer talks about that council, 
uh, I think he's on solid ground. Now, he was speaking on the basis of privileged information, of course, but he was only repeating what you can read in the Bible. The Bible's word for that council is the El Ba'ada, the Council of Powers. The Sumerian stories talk about the Sky Council. And as you go through the Bible, you realize it is a council with a diversity of beings on it. You have interdimensional or energy-based beings referenced in 1 Kings 22, as well as physical 3D flesh and blood entities like you and me called the Elohim. So it's a council of multiple factions, all who feel they have a stakeholding in Project Earth. Hamashed calls it the Galactic Federation, again reminding us that these are beings who can either project interdimensionally or who can travel through subspace technology, through the manipulation of space-time. And the ancient stories always talk about conflicts on that council uh, over how many humans there should be, for instance, how long should they live, what access should they have to clean water, food, medication, so on and so forth. And it's not difficult to look at recent struggles to think those might still be live issues. But my impression, comparing the now with the stories of our ancestors, is that there are more factions on that council today than there were 10,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago. And there's been a stability, for the most part, in terms of non-disclosure that I think gives me some cause for hope. And if I just look at our visible leaders, uh, if I look at our elite bankers, if I look at the world of the top corporations, if I look at the trends in uh, Uber government, the policies that transcend you know, the passage of different elected governments, yes, things look pretty dark at the moment. And it looks like there are significant powers who want a less happy human experience for us in the next generations. But it gives me hope that those visible powers are not where the buck stops in terms of Project Earth. And I think we have very significant and powerful friends in high places who want something better for humanity. And I talked earlier about Asherah, who represents beings who come from the region of space we identify with the Pleiades. And then there are other ancestral narratives that identify helpers from the region of space we call Sirius. And they are here because they like human beings. They want us to have a happy human experience. And I believe they are still part, still presences on that council that is oversighting what's happening. And that gives me far more hope that we might have a decent future than when I look to the visible uh, human layer of planetary governance.